Well, when we think of some of the great intercessory prayers of Scripture, I think a few quickly come to mind. Right? You might think of Solomon's prayer of dedication at the temple, an extraordinary prayer. Certainly Daniel's prayer of repentance and his plea for restoration from exile comes to mind. The Apostle Paul has a number of extraordinary prayers in his letters, especially in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, which I hope you're familiar with because they're on the prayer sheet. And the most sublime of all is our Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17. But our text this morning, the Old Testament reading from Isaiah 63 and 64, should be numbered among these great prayers. It has been called the most powerful psalm of communal lamentation in the Bible. This text, right, this is a moving, visceral uh, prayer. This is a cry of longing and lamentation and paradoxically hope. It's desperate, it's raw, it's vast in scope. In short, it's an Advent prayer. An Advent, Karl Barth said, is the only season the church ever lives in. Right? Because in Advent, we both look back with joy to the coming of Christ and forward with hope and expectation and yearning for his coming again in glory. And that fundamental tension, right, shapes and structures the whole Christian life, the whole New Testament. And to relax that tension is to distort the whole Christian world. Advent is the only season the church is ever in. And you will notice, if you're new to this, in the lectionary, in the, in the collection of readings that the church uses at Advent, you'll think, I thought Advent was about Jesus coming as a baby. Why are all these texts about the second coming being read? And it's precisely because of this. The two Advents, the two appearances are locked together. You can't celebrate the one without yearning for the other. This is an Advent prayer. And as such, it's a fitting text for this season of waiting and groaning of joyful memory and fervent hope in the midst of the darkness, which has been invaded by the light and yet mysteriously remains, even in us. The text, again, I'm talking about the Isaiah text, right? The Old Testament lesson. The text envisions Israel, as we sang this morning, as mourning in lonely exile. Now, this is going to require a certain amount of cognitive empathy on your part, right? To enter sympathetically into this scene, we need to put ourselves into a world where our homeland and its cities and its towns and all of its places of worship have been razed to the ground by a ruthless, invading, imperial power. Where everyone you know is either dead or in exile. And where, even if there is to be a return to the land, neither you nor your children will ever see this land again. 
And even there, right, the anguish of this text is not fully fathomed. Since our land here does not have divine promises attached to it. Right? Israel and Jerusalem and the temple have divine promises attached to them. So the immediate situation here envisions or concerns the exile. The exile into Babylon, which occurred in the 6th century B.C. Which, after the exodus, is the most formative and important and epochal and explosive event in the whole Old Testament. It continually shapes the mind and the ethos of Israel. But we know, we know from the latter half of the book of Isaiah, that the prophet sees far beyond the restoration from exile. He looks down in the spirit and he sees the emergence of this great messianic figure, the servant of the Lord, the suffering one. And he sees that servant sending forth light even beyond the borders of Israel to the ends of the earth. And indeed in his vision, in Isaiah's vision, ultimately just after our text in chapter 65, he sees the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. So, This exile text is an Advent text. For its fulfillment, our deliverance from exile occurs ultimately in the advent of Israel's Messiah, the world's Savior, Jesus Christ. So we'll look at the text under three headings. They're there on the outline on page five in the bulletin. Look and see, rend and come down, and please look. So first then, look and see. So again, this is Isaiah 63, beginning of verse 15. So here the prophet, speaking in deep solidarity with his people, urges the Lord to look down from heaven and see from his holy habitation, what he calls here, holy and glorious, your beautiful habitation. Your theology of heaven will determine and drive the way you pray on earth. And Isaiah has a rich, vivid, pulsating theology of heaven. God is infinite and he's omnipresent. He is not locally confined in heaven and yet heaven is somehow his created throne room. It is the place of God's immediate shining forth in glory, the place where angels dwell and the departed saints dwell. Into that place, Isaiah was lifted up in chapter 6. And there he saw the Lord, high and lifted up. There he saw seraphim veiling their faces before the fire of the thrice holy God. There, the foundations of the heavenly house itself trembled and were full of smoke. And Isaiah was undone as a man of unclean lips. And there he receives his prophetic call to ministry. He knows this place, this heaven. You know it too, because it's where you are this morning by faith in Jesus Christ. It's where Christian worship occurs. It's where Christians dwell. And here, Isaiah speaks of heaven itself. Again, a concrete, created place where God is enthroned. He speaks of it as lofty, holy, beautiful, and glorious. The Lord is enthroned in his heavenly temple, in transcendent, 
stately majesty and splendor. But his people are suffering grave affliction. And it's that contrast which creates the pathos of this text. In fact, it's that contrast which evokes something of a holy quarrel with God. An inquiry of God. When God appears to be absent or silent, the community continues to speak to him. And indeed to protest the situation. See, Isaiah starts, see, O Lord, please look and see our distress. It's as if God himself is eyeless and unfeeling. Where is your zeal, he says. Where is your passionate commitment to keep your promises? Right? You can see why this is the first Sunday of Advent text already. But in any case, right, this is the perennial cry of the suffering. How long, O oh Lord? How long? History is interminably long for suffering, disenfranchised people. This is the cry of Advent. It is the cry of the church. It is the cry of the martyrs in heaven. How long, O oh Lord? How long? Where are your zeal and your might, he says. Where is your heroic ability to save from oppression? Just prior to the text, he asks, where is the God of the Exodus? It's where, where, where. You know, to act as if God is just unproblematically, irresistibly, obviously, palpably present everywhere all the time is to lie. Yes, it's a theological truth, God is present. But he appears absent a lot. He appears not to care and to act as if this is not the case, which the speech of many American Christians seems to do, is to lie. That's why the prophet says, where, where, where? Look, see. We do remember that you came down at the Exodus, so we know this absence can be bridged. But when God recedes, the absence is there. And so the lamentation continues. The stirring of your inner parts, he says, and your compassion, your overflowing love for your people are held back from me, he says. God seems to have placed a self-imposed restriction on his own tender mercies. He hides himself. Why is he so elusive? So the pain here is acute pain. Why the inaction? Why the passivity? It appears like neglect. Like God is uninterested. I mean, have we not suffered enough cultural and political and familial and personal humiliation? 
How much public humiliation can we endure? The stirrings of your compassion, O oh God, should be visible. Instead, we sit here in abject misery and all too visible defeat. And so the prophet pleads, for you are our father. Meaning, you're the one who created us. You formed us as a nation. You are responsible for us, O oh God. We are your children. This is your house. Abraham and Isaac, Abraham and Israel, he says, do not acknowledge us. They would hardly recognize our estate. But you're our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Right? What's, now here, it's important to know that a redeemer is the one who's the next of kin. Right? The Redeemer has the rights to deliver out of a forfeited inheritance. Abraham and Israel cannot save us, but our Father surely can. And indeed, he has a legal duty to intervene. Right? And so just below the surface here is this question. What kind of Father restrains his compassion? from his suffering children. The prophet is brokenhearted. You want to get an even closer glimpse of the dreadful state of these people in verse 17. Oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden your heart, harden our hearts so that we fear you not? He walks right up to the line of accusing God of causing their own sin. But that's not the point here. The point is that Israel has incurred guilt, and as such, they are under God's judicial wrath. And that sentence results in their hearts being hardened, of them losing the fear of God. Notice the progress here. He started with an accusation of God's absence, and he's moved to the root cause. Israel is desolate. God has turned his face from her because of her sins. He's not naive about this. So the only remedy then is another turning, if you will, in the heart of God. Verse 17, return, turn back for the sake of your servants, for the tribes of your heritage. Israel is God's inheritance. How can he just forget her? How can he just let her languish? So again, verse 18, you can see their adversaries have trampled down the sanctuary. Right, so their, their, their place of worship has been burned down. And the prophet says that our plight's as bad as any other nation. He says it's as if you've never elected us. You've never ruled over us. You've never placed your name on us. All of this disgrace, the prophet urges God to look down from heaven and see it. It's as if he's saying to God what the prophets say in other places, don't be as a blind man. So, that's the first point. The second point is rend and come down. The, the opening plea for God to look down from heaven, to stir up his own compassions, as emotional as it is, is actually intensified here. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Perhaps the most important word 
in this prayer is the two-letter word, oh. Right? Oh. That shows the groaning, the sighing, the longing, the interior depths of this prayer. This is why Paul says of you, of the Christian community in 2 Corinthians 4, that if you have the first fruits of the Spirit, you groan for the redemption of your body. Groaning is a fundamental state of affairs for the people of God. And it's at the heart of this prayer. So now God is called upon, not merely to look and see, but to tear the veil between heaven and earth, the curtain that he himself spread out, to rend it and to descend, to come down in person and act. You did this before at the Exodus. The mountains quaked at your presence. And so now Isaiah wants another Exodus-like deliverance. He wants the mountains to quake again. He wants the fiery presence of God, the dangerous glory of God to appear. The fire which he says kindles brushwood and causes water to boil. He yearns for God to make his name, his heavenly glory, known to his adversaries. Why? So that the Gentile nations might tremble at God's manifest presence, the text says. It's almost as if he's saying this, Look, Lord, if our misery does not move you, please consider the honor of your own name in the sight of the nations. And in verse 4, he repairs to the uniqueness of Israel's God. God is singular. He's incomprehensible. He's incomparable. And, and you get this little breather in verse 4. One, one scholar called it a doxological interlude. A little moment of praise in the middle of the lament. From of old, you know, there's no God like you, he says. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God like you. Right? This was cited in our New Testament lesson from 1 Corinthians 2. Paul cites this text concerning the unique mystery, the surprise of the gospel. Eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. As desolate and dark and bleak and hopeless and sustained is the human misery that Israel's enduring. The surprise advent of God in Christ will surpass all human expectations. It will be a thing astounding, beyond all you can ask or think. This is what the Advent hope promises. Advent is about things that your eye has not seen, nor has your ear heard, nor has it even entered into your heart. Because Advent is finally about the resurrection of the dead and the transfiguration of the whole cosmos. The God who has thus far refused to act is nonetheless, the prophet says at the end of verse 4, the God who does act. And here it's a statement of faith. He does act for those who wait for him. For those who remember righteousness. But his anger abides on Israel because the prophet says, in our sins we have been a long time. A long time. And so the prophet asks this very mournful question. He says, and shall we be saved? 
Now remember, salvation, we would do well to remember this, is not at this point a foregone conclusion. Every single promise of God appears to be negated, nullified, and broken in the exile. Right? They lost the temple. They lost the throne of David. They lost the land. They lost the priesthood. The prophet prays for salvation on the basis of God's fatherhood. Yet the depth of Israel's sin and its long continuation across centuries leaves the prophet, leaves the nation mourning, waiting with this open-ended question, and shall we be saved? So that if salvation comes, it's going to be by an act of sovereign deliverance, by sheer gift, by a tearing of the veil between heaven and earth, by a descent of God himself. It will be a salvation that is nothing other than a resurrection from the dead. It will not be something you can conjure or that you can chaperone because the presence of God will not be managed by us. And so he continues, the prophet, this corporate confession of sin in verse 6. You'll know these verses as well, I think. We all have become like one who's unclean. We are like, O Lord, one corporate leper. Excluded from your now burned sanctuary. Even our righteous deeds, even the stuff we're proud of, is like a polluted garment. And in this exiled state, this is astonishing. He says, no one calls on the name of the Lord. Right? People and nations have an astonishing ability to not Turn to God. We should know this because we have it. Now the prophet is doing it vicariously for them. But he says, no one rouses themselves to take hold of God. Right? In the midst of our cultural distresses and upheavals, I urge you, be one who rouses themselves to lay hold of this God. So Israel is a rotting spiritual corpse. In the absence of God's presence, the end of verse 7 says, we melt. We melt in the hands of our iniquities. This is ironic because the prophet wanted the fire of God to come down and melt or burn up the adversaries. Instead, the hiding of God's face melts his own people in their own sins. The last point is, please look. It's a little repetitive, I know. Verse 8, but now, O Lord, you are our father. He returns to this fatherhood of God. Because it's the only hope that something will rise out of the ashes. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. And since we're at your mercy... He appeals for God not to continue in his anger, not to remember iniquity forever. Psalm 103 has already told us God does not deal with us. He will not, according to our sins, he will not keep his anger forever. And then there's this wounded, sad cry for pity. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Right? This silence from God, this inaction, seems even more intolerable 
when the state of God's earthly house is brought into view. He says, look, look, your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion and Jerusalem, the place of your abode, decimated. And in contrast to God who sits apparently unmoved in his holy habitation... He says, our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And the text ends with one more passionate entreaty. How can God restrain himself at these things? It's incomprehensible. Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Imagine ending a long prayer with that. Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Have you utterly rejected us? That's the implied question. This is a final supplication for God to relent from his self-imposed restraint. He's held back the stirrings of his compassion. He's restrained himself, the prophet says, at all of these things, at all of this unending national trauma. We want, the prophet says, God all of God, the unrestrained God, all the fullness of God, to look, to see, to stir himself up, to tear the heavens and come down. Now, I realize that this history can be difficult to relate to. Since it is, for most of us anyway, foreign to our own personal or national histories. But Advent, beloved, is about longing. And it is about this longing. Because this Father is our Father. Advent is about recognizing that this history is your family history. These are your fathers. These are your ancestors in distress. This, in fact, is your personal history. The fate of the world, and thus your fate, is suspended on the pleas in this text. This exile, this divine silence, concerns us because the narrative of this people is the narrative into which our lives have been swept up. We're perhaps too individualistic as Americans to grasp this. This takes a real corporate mentality to recognize the solidarity we have with these people. In the book of Hebrews, it says, all of these Old Testament saints, all of them who died in faith, will not be made perfect without us. They will not be made complete without us, and we will not be complete without them. We will inherit together with them. Their story is our story. And we will not grasp the glory of Advent the surprise of redemption without seeing ourselves in this story and sensing in this story both its horror and its centuries-long anguish and its stunning conclusion. The posture of Advent waiting, then, is the posture of repentant people asking, with Israel, with Israel, shall we be saved? The central cry of Advent, the cry of every human heart which recognizes the human predicament, the cry of the church which has received the Spirit, is this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. 
Advent is a reminder that that cry should be at the center of your prayer life, the center of your life, the center of your existence. What are we waiting for anyway? The midterms? What are we waiting for? What are we yearning for? What are we crying for? What are we praying for? If you dig down there, what's down there? This is supposed to be down there, the prophet says. Oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down. And the glory of Advent is that, in fact, in history, in Israel's tragic history and our tragic history, that cry has been heard in the incarnation of the Son of God in the womb of the Virgin Mary. God has torn the heavens and come down. Redemption has torn through. It has rent the surface of time, the veil between heaven and earth in the word made flesh. God has come down in person into our exile, into the midst of our darkness and our pollution and our leprous condition. In fact, the work of restoring us from exile will take Jesus right into the teeth of the anguish in this text. He will also, Psalm 22 indicates this, he will also have, he will begin by confessing that God is glorious and enthroned in his habitation, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And then he would continue to say, for Israel's and for our sake, he will continue to confront this very silence, this very absence, in the midst of his own innocent Representative suffering. Why are you so far from saving me? And from the words of my groaning. That's Jesus on the cross. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, and I find no rest. He will ask in righteousness and truth, as one innocent, as Israel could not ask. Right? He will ask this question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he will be heard for Israel and for us. So the good news of Advent is that the time of exile is coming to an end. The house of God will be restored in the holy Catholic church. The people of God will be gathered from the ends of the earth. And in the Son, God will be our Father anew again. Now, this does not entail that the longing of this text is something wholly past. I think I've made that clear. Or something completely foreign to us. We mention this a lot around here, especially this time of year. But the first advent and the second advent are locked into each other. We still suffer in a groaning creation. We still long for the full appearing, the coming advent of our Savior. But we do celebrate that there has been a decisive answer to the prophet and to the nation's despair in the incarnation of the Son. The compassions of God in the face of his people's sin and their suffering, appearances to the contrary, decades, even centuries of silence notwithstanding, the compassions of God have not been restrained or withheld. We take the long view on this question. God has stirred himself up in a way no one expected. Certainly not Israel in the 6th century B.C. He has stirred himself up. He has roused himself. He's broken his long silence. He's rent the heavens and he's come down in holy fire for the sake of his name, his city, his house, for our sakes. 
unrestrained in his fullness in Jesus Christ. So rejoice. Rejoice. Emmanuel has come and shall again rend the heavens and come down to thee, O Israel. Amen. Amen.